Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Thursday, July 20th. Now something kind of unusual. We are joined by WNYC's Allison Stewart, who, of course, hosts all of it with Allison Stewart, the best arts and culture show anywhere, in addition to the other things it does well. But Allison is coming on as a guest on this more news-oriented show because, much to her surprise, she has found herself in the news. How? Because Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas cited Allison last month in his concurring opinion in the landmark case that declared affirmative action in higher education unconstitutional. Allison is not pleased. In fact, she wrote an article on HuffPost called Clarence Thomas cited my work in his affirmative action opinion. Here's what he got wrong. Now, what Justice Thomas cited was a book that Allison released in 2013 called First Class, The Legacy of Dunbar, America's First Black Public High School. Allison joins us now to further set the record straight. Hi, Allison. Thanks for taking some time from from prepping for your show (laughs) to come on and have a conversation here. Thanks for having me, Brian. Do you remember, by the way, that in 2013, which was five years before you came to work here, you were on with me as a guest for a book interview when First Class first came out. I did remember that. Yeah, I remember sitting. I think I'm sitting in the same studio that we sat in. <laughs> Absolutely, you are. And we're going to play a clip from that interview to help you make your point in a couple of minutes. But that was 10 years ago. Now you're back to talk about the book again. We can do this once a decade, Allison, no more. <laughs> and, and you know, we don't uh, usually have authors on twice for the same book, but <laughs> it's not every day an author is in the news for saying they were misinterpreted by the Supreme Court. I'll, I'll read in a minute the specific passage where mm-hmm. Thomas cites you in your book, but would you give our listeners some basics first? What was Dunbar? Why did you write a book about it in the first place? Okay, so Dunbar is this amazing story about the first black public high school in the United States. And it is a school that produced many of the glass ceiling breakers in our culture. The first black senator after Reconstruction, Senator Ed Brooke, the first black federal judge, the first black general in the army, the first uh, Charles Drew who invented the modern blood bank, uh, Billy Taylor, the jazz musician, Elizabeth Catlett, the great artist. The f- and it had this really interesting ecosystem because many of the first African-Americans to graduate from college couldn't get jobs in their fields. So it was a group of hype that all became teachers. And so the people in Dunbar were hi- educated by hyper-educated people. The first black graduate of Harvard was one of the principals. Many of the history teachers were trained as lawyers. Many of them were civil rights leaders. The principal of the school, the longest uh, standing principal, one of the longest standing principals, and one of the most important, I should say, was Anna Julia Cooper, the very famous feminist and civil rights icon. So the idea that, you know, we, in the inner, uh, inner flap, I remember us writing, can we say this is a high school that changed America? And we realized we really could because because the architect of desegregation, Charles Hamilton Houston, was a graduate, and he trained the lawyers who argued Brown versus Board of Education to integrate schools. So it's this incredible story. And what happened is, like a lot of these institutions, Dunbar had fell on incredibly hard times. 
Um, the school fell into disrepair. The academic program faltered. And I realized the people who could tell the story of Dunbar were all in their 70s, 80s, and 90s. And their story was going to get lost. It became a, a little bit of myth about it when it really was a, a real place. And bearing the lead, my parents went there in the 40s, which is how I knew about it. Huh. So now I'll read for the listeners what Justice Thomas wrote, and then we'll discuss. So, folks, in his written opinion, he's making the case that an education system without affirmative action, a system he calls meritocratic, can provide for black equality better than the education system with affirmative action has done. He writes, for example, quote, Xavier University, an HBCU, historically black college or university, with only a small percentage of white students, has had better success at helping its low-income students move into the middle class than Harvard. And each of the top 10 HBCUs have a success rate above the national average. Why then would the court need to allow other universities to racially discriminate? Discriminate is how he uh, characterizes affirmative action. And right in the middle of that little passage, he drops a footnote, footnote 12, for those keeping score at home. <laughs> and it's footnote 12 that name checks Allison and her book. It says, in the years preceding Brown, Brown versus Board of Education, of course, in the years preceding Brown, the most prominent example of an exemplary black school was Dunbar High School, America's first public high school for black students. Known for academics, the school attracted black students from across the Washington, D.C. area. And then it goes on, Dunbar produced the first black general in, uh, US, in the U.S. Army, the first black federal court judge, and the first black presidential cabinet member. And then the citation, A. Stewart, first class, the legacy of Dunbar, 2013. And the way, I, the way I found out about it, I've got the text up here. It says Monday, July 3rd, 601. This is from my friend Jeff, who is the son of a Dunbar graduate. I got to know him. President of the Harvard Club, by the way, <laughs> in D.C. Mm -hmm. says, hey, I just read the affirmative action decision and saw Clarence Thomas signed your book in, your footnote, in his footnote concurrence. Uh, surprise face, to totally misinterpret your work. I'm sure I'm not the first person to share this, but just want the record to show that I'm appalled. <laughs> and I was, I was standing in Union Station in Washington, D.C. when I got this text, and I was like, what is Jeff talking? Jeff's a, an attorney for the FCC, so I'm like, he's the guy who reads the footnotes. Mm -hmm. um, and it was just such a shocking moment. You know, you we're not on my bingo card for 2023 that something like this would happen. And I think I shared with you earlier that it struck me particularly hard because I had just taken my son to the Smithsonian National African American Museum in D.C. So you're walking out of the uh, National African American Museum of the Smithsonian on July 4th weekend, and you find out that Clarence Thomas, in your view, misinterpreted your book yeah. and name-checked you in that context um, right there as you're doing that. Yeah, and it was, you know, that mu museum is so moving, and it's so much about, there's so much history, and there's so much difficult history to think about and to process, and, the, you know, there's an entire section on school segregation. Some of the people mentioned in my book, mentioned in that footnote, are featured in that uh, in that museum. There's just so much to digest and so much to understand about how, 
all that so, has happened in this country. And then to have this happen, I, I, it just really struck a nerve. So what did you think when you had time to read and digest the way he cited you in your book? I thought I, I, I felt very uh, upset on behalf of Dunbar's history and Dunbar graduates. And because their story is the opposite of what his concurrence is about and what Justice Roberts, he, he wrote the, the main uh, argument. It, the school was the opposite of that. And the idea that a one piece of information, which is true, he, he pulled fact, and he cherry-picked a piece of information to support his argument, I think is really, it, one, pointing it out is important because it's instructive about context and how important context is. That all of these young men and women who were, would go on to fight so hard to try to make a life for themselves, armed only with the education they got in a segregated system, by the way, is mind-boggling that he would flip that on this head, the idea of, like, just because you're very smart and just because you're brilliant, then the world is going to open up for you, and we live in a colorblind society. These people who went to this school before, I say, 68, gosh, they have lived it. They know that's not true. Now, I actually want to play a 40-second clip of you on this show for your book interview in 2013, when you told me that it literally used to keep you up at night when you were writing the book, worrying that anyone might take it as somehow supporting segregation. Here we go. Oh, it used my husband and I, I, I used to have a cold sweat at night that someone would think that. And when we were, you know, I knew I was going to go out and do press. I was like, ask me the worst question you can about this. <laughs> I would, you know, say, I have to really think this through because I just can't use the word good and segregation in the same sentence. I think it is more about how how determined the students were and the faculty were to educate these kids. I also think it shows a little bit of the failure of the early days of integration. I, I say it's more about, you know, because D.C. didn't didn't integrate. It just legally desegregated. Yeah. Dunbar was always all black and has remained almost always all black. And again, listeners, and those of you just joining us, that was Allison Stewart on this show in 2013 talking about her book, First Class, about Dunbar, the high school in Washington, D.C., that propelled so many prominent African-Americans into leadership positions once upon a time, largely in the segregation era, era. So the prospect of a Clarence Thomas doing what he did was a middle-of-the-night nightmare for you <laughs> yes. 10 years ago, and now it's a waking reality today. Do you, do you take his opinion to mean he was saying something good about Jim Crow-era segregation? I think that, you know, it's interesting because we had Joel Anderson on who uh, has done the slow burn about Clarence Thomas and how he grew up and has interviewed his mother and has, you know, gone through all of his memoirs. And it's a really great podcast. And one of the things that came out of it was, you know, he, Clarence Thomas, and I don't want to play chair, uh, armchair psychologist here, but he has said that he has felt that people looked at him when he got to Yale as an affirmative action case. And that that was really damaging to him. And, and it's clear that he... That's th Thomas's argument. Yeah, that's his argument. So it's this idea of people not thinking that black people can be smart enough or can achieve enough that seems to really... Uh, it just seems to permeate his argument. So when I read that, I thought, like, well, no kidding, black students can achieve. Why? That's not really the argument here 
in in my mind or the argument that I want to be associated with. That's obviously that's possible. It's what happens in terms of opportunity, what happens in terms of access, what happens in terms of support. So, you know, I don't know what he's, I don't know what he's arguing. I don't really understand it, to be honest, Um, although it just does seem in some way to stem from something very personal. Um, I don't know if you, the the other parts of that, that concurrence, it's a very personal back and forth with, uh, with, with just, just uh, Katanji Brown Jackson. Um, It's really very uh, personal, I felt, in reading it. So Allison Thomas is as high profile as you can get, Mm -hmm. but... Have other less famous people turned the context of your book on its head publicly like this, too, that you've been aware of that, you know, make you live that nightmare that you talked about before? Not really. I, I, most of the response was, why don't I know the story? And especially also from people in D.C., that was really telling to me. And also thought that was really important. Um, not that, I, you know, if I could write the book over again, I would. It's clearly a book by a first-time author and another copy edit. But the idea that some of these ide- stories would get lost, and then they were. But, you know, when I first went to Dunbar, the first time I went, um, and I write about this in, in the book, that the only sort of history of it was in this dusty old case in the corner and they had a few photos of graduates Eleanor Holm Norton is a graduate there was a picture of Senator Brooke they literally in broken frames hanging askew in this one corner of the high school and it was just so sad to me and I thought gosh if we don't write down this history it will disappear we can learn from this history. We can learn from the mistakes that were done by. There was a lot of respectability politics. There was a lot of colorism. I don't want to, you know, be completely blind to all of that. Um, but there is so much to learn. And there's so much. It's it's interesting because when I would write to people to try to get interviews, um, people really wanted to talk about it. Valerie Jarrett's father went to Dunbar, and he integrated a hospital in Chicago. Um, who else? Uh, uh, Gordon Davis, former Parks Commissioner, his father went to, went to Dunbar. He gave me a great um, interview. And it's just so interesting to see that how it just, the tentacles of Dunbar, how it really sent out people into the world who really tried to make a difference, who were really dedicated to education, who were really dedicated to opportunity. You know, they used to call them race men and women in the 30s and 40s. But just the the um, the sort of the uh, focus, the focus on trying to make things better was really, really admirable. And I, and I just wanted to make sure that came through. And I think that's part of why this was so frustrating to see mm-hmm. um, is because these folks wanted to fight for integration. These folks did fight literally in front of the Supreme Court for integration. These folks were all about young people of color, and I think we can expand that out to to other marginalized groups, having a chance, having an opportunity, and then doing something with it. Elizabeth in Ridgewood, New Jersey. You're on WNYC. Hi, Elizabeth. Good morning. Good morning. I have a um, two-part question, uh, and uh, your your guest probably knows the answer to. Number one, Justice Thomas, does he feel that him being black had anything to do with his success, gave him opportunities as becoming the justice of the Supreme Court that maybe he would not be afforded if he was not? And number two, does affirmative action have anything to do with his success that ever in his schooling that became a um, 
some kind of a, a force that, that helps them succeed. And thank you very much. Uh, this is a great program. Thank you. Elizabeth, thank you very much. Um, Allison, I don't know if you weigh in. I'll characterize what I believe Justice mm-hmm. Thomas has said about that, um, which is whether or not he was considered by the admissions committee at Yale a, quote, affirmative action admit. He was perceived that way by students and faculty at Yale. They therefore thought he was less qualified than he thought he really was and just less capable in general. And he has written and spoken about how he feels that that has followed him, uh, that did follow him at the time into his early professional career when he wanted to work in the private sector at high-priced law firms, uh, but he thought they looked down their nose at him, even though he graduated from Yale, as an affirmative action baby and therefore not as qualified as his on-paper credentials would indicate. And that's when he wound up going into government. I don't know if you want to add anything to that. <laughs> when I think about that, I think about that sounds like a YP, not a MyP. Like a your problem, not a my problem, not a art, but it is our problem now. Look, I have been, I have been called an affirmative action case. I have, I'll be honest, I have screenshots from a fellow broadcaster that were sent to me of describing me as that. Uh, I'm good at what I do. I've worked hard at what I do. To Wendy's point, I, I, okay, you want to believe that? Fine. Great. Good. And enjoy your life. Um, So I, I, I feel, and I'm going to say something very odd. I feel for someone who, who, feels that negatively about themselves, that they have internalized it in such a way. You are the best by any standard, <laughs> so you can take that broadcaster's comment as a blurb for any context. Jennifer in East Harlem, you're on WNYC with Allison. Hi. Yes, good morning. Thank you for taking my call again, Brian. So, Allison, congratulations for all that you do and certainly your notoriety in this case. I did want to ask if you have been able to directly you know, kind of counter this with Justice Thomas, because I think you are certainly, you know, I think it would be critically important to do so, especially because you are a woman. And I also think that um, a lot of his positioning on many things, including um, the sexual harassment issues, where he then kind of self-depicted himself as as a black man being lynched. Mm. I mean, I do think he needs to be taken to task. And um, I think that many people are daunted by that possibility with him um, because I think he is very masterful in a very insidious way of playing the race card to benefit himself when, you know, it's appropriate and then to denigrate it when it doesn't work, including kind of disenfranchising his own community. I am not an individual of color, so I'm not speaking from that positioning but I certainly share the view that his hypocrisy is extreme and deeply offensive to the black community. So I'd welcome your feedback on whatever I presented. Thank you. Yeah, Jennifer, thank you. thank you. And I'm particularly interested in, in the part of her question that asked if you've gotten to present your objection personally to Clarence Thomas or if you have any indication that he's read your article and uh, takes it seriously or not. Nothing like that. And I, and I, and I don't expect that to be the case. The, you know, the reason I really just wanted the idea that someone would Google first class and Dunbar and my name and that might pop up really mm. upset me a lot. And I think this is something we're going to talk about tomorrow on my show is I'm about to have surgery. I'm about to go in for surgery. I'm donating a kidney to my sister. 
And it's going to be great and it's going to be fine. But I, you know, I think that was weighing in my mind as well. Like, well, okay, I think I need to write this before I get get my affairs in order. So I'm getting my, and I has been, so I have been. So I'm, I was thinking, I just need to have it written down somewhere that I, I object to this. It's not right. Everybody think about what you're reading. Think about context. Think about context. Even within a Supreme Court argument and concurrence, things can be taken out of context. And it, it seems sad to be, have to say that. But if, if anybody takes anything away from you, you may disagree 100% of what I've said about this. But know that, that there is a footnote in a Supreme Court argument which is wrong. <laughs> So take what you read with a grain of salt and do your own research, especially with this particular court. Last question, Allison. You conclude your HuffPost article by writing that all you can do is use your words to set the record straight. But you also have a request of Clarence Thomas <laughs> going forward. You want to say it out loud here? Yes, I went back and forth on this because I'm I'm an, I'm a pretty no drama and I'm very a pretty sober person and I I just tried to be really straight straightforward. But I just this is where you can tell I was mad. <laughs> I said, please just keep your name and Dunbar's name out of your mouth the way the kids say these days. <laughs> keep your name, Allison Stewart's <laughs> yes. name, and Dunbar's name out of your mouth. All right, Justice Thomas, if you happen to be listening today, there's, let's call it a firm request (laughs) from Allison Stewart. Thanks, Brian. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.